So I don't know what y'all did yesterday, um, <laughs> but at the Haney house, we had what we call football day. Our kids know what football day means. That means there are no cartoons in the living room and uh, playing best happens in the bedroom where daddy and mommy can sit and just watch football, okay? My kids have yet to really learn uh, that, that, that what to leave me alone. Y'all can judge me if you want, but that's what we do, all right? And because this, this is really the first football that we've gotten to watch, which in all honesty, if it's not SEC, is it football? But, um, but from year to year, what I, f- what I forget when I come back, the beginning of a season, what I always come back to is I'm reminded of how freakishly talented these guys that are playing at this level are. Um, just unbelievable talent. So strong, so fast. And so if you've if watched yesterday, um, some incredible running backs uh, playing yesterday. But one of, the, one of the moves that a running back makes is a juke, right? And so a juke is essentially I'm going this way, and then I very, very quickly change my direction and start going this way. And when a running back can do it well, like the greats, like Barry Sanders and many others, it leaves defenders looking silly and icing their ankles. But there's a key to the move, Right? If you've ever seen a good running back, there's a key to the juke. Before you can go in that direction, you have to plant a foot, right? You can't just, otherwise it's just a, it's, a, it's you like a snake. To make it sharp and crisp, you have to plant a foot and then go that direction. I say all that to say. The scripture we're looking at today is Jesus planting a foot. Jesus has been heading in a particular direction. He's been defining for us what the kingdom looks like, what are the kingdom principles, what does kingdom influence look like. And today, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus plants a foot. And the next, in October, we're going to kind of look at a new four-week series where Jesus begins to head in a very distinct direction. But today is really the, the verses that set that up. Okay, so today is the moment where Jesus is going to plant that leg and he's going to push his full body weight into a new direction. So he's, he's been doing all this stuff, um, but in the month of October, like I said, we're going to look at several statements from Jesus that begin with, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Uh, so Jesus is going to be taking quotes from the Jewish practice and even from the Holy Scriptures, and he's just going to push into them a little bit. And he's going to really challenge. Uh, Some of these are directly from the Hebrew Bible, but others are just common teaching from the rabbis of the day. So naturally, just be prepared. Jesus is going to sound a little edgy. He's going to sound a little controversial. And for his day, he's going to sound a little liberal. For his day. Okay? Don't throw stuff at me. But he's going to push against the interpretations of, that the Jews have been, have been practicing up to this point, all right? So I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. Hang on to that for next week. Don't miss a single week in October. It's going to be fun. I'm going to read 17 through 20, pray, and then we'll come back and look at it. Verse 17, <clears throat> don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or single stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands 
will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, we uh, trust you that your word is uh, from you. And God, we understand that it's, it's been interpreted and tra- translated into many different languages. But God, we believe that what we hold today, even in our English translation, God, is still your word uh, through so many people, God. And we believe it directly applies to us today. God, I pray as we talk about some cultural context and some things from 2,000 years ago, God, I pray that we don't get lost in that. But, God, that we, uh, we, we recognize the application for us today. And, God, today that you would teach us to know you better and that you would be with us in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start looking through this passage. Uh, we're probably not going to mine everything there is to mine, okay? But I think there are at least three major points from the passage and then one takeaway at the end. If you've got an outline, we'll be moving through that. Beginning right now, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible, a.k.a. the Old Testament. All right, that's the point number one. So the term Hebrew Bible may be one you're not used to. It's probably not something that, uh, I know I've probably said it very few times in front of you, if even, but I think it is good for us to remember that what we call the Old Testament in our Bible was the Bible to Jesus and his disciples, Okay. Like, that's, a, that's important for us to remember. It, it wasn't the Old Testament. It was the Testament, okay? It was the Word of God to them. It was all they had. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Hebrew Bible is formed. It's agreed upon, the books that are in it, and, it is, and it's being circulated, okay? Now, I'm going to get a little nerdy, but this will hit home with some of y'all, and if you don't like nerdy stuff, just take a nap and come back, all right? The Hebrew Bible actually contained the exact same books that we have, but they were in a different order, okay? And so uh, it's actually laid out very differently. So I would argue that the Old Testament, I'm going to teach y'all something today, okay? We're going to go kids ministry a little bit. I'm going to teach you guys that today the Old Testament, I believe, has five sections, and I'm going to teach you hand signals that go along with them, and I want 100% participation. Men, I don't know why I'm pointing y'all out. But y'all usually don't do good with class participation, all right? But this is what I developed for my own kids and just uh, as I was talking to children's ministers and stuff and we kind of developed something at my previous church that really helped our kids understand the five sections of the Bible. So I believe the five sections of the Bible are this. Um, and let me, and actually if you've got a Bible, flip to the table of contents and you can see these as we go through. All right, I'm going to teach you this. You can teach this to your kids. Here, here's why I think this is important. For me, I, as a kid, I memorized Genesis through uh, Malachi. I memorized all the books of the Bible because I was made to and probably got candy if I did it, okay? But the problem was, is if, if my pastor ever said, open to Joel, I had to go, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you <laughs> I had to start at the very beginning. It's a long way before you get to Joel. The sermon's halfway over by the time I got there. And so what this does, by, by memorizing them in sections and remembering the sections, when the pastor says, Joel, you go, ah, that's a minor prophet. That begins here, and, psh, and then you move through, okay? So I'm going to show you this. It's really helpful for me, and honestly, if you've never heard this or thought about it, it's okay. Neither did I until a few years ago. All right, five sections of the Bible are this. Law is the first one. You're going to make a hammer with your fist, a gavel, pound it down. All right, Law. This is, uh, this is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right, law. 
The second one is always, it's one of the kids' favorites, and it's history. You just make a clock with your hand. You can do 12 o'clock, you're 6 o'clock, you can do 12, you just do whatever. And you say history, right? These are the books beginning with Joshua, as you'll see there. These are the books of Joshua all the way down through Esther, okay? So when you make that clock, that's history. So we have law, history. For some reason, I like 4 o'clock or 3.55, I don't know. That's my favorite. All right. The third one is this. It's poetry. And that's Job through, what's that in? Job through a song of songs, right? Right before we get to the prophets. And so this is poetry. And so poetry, uh, you don't just write poetry. You write poetry, right? The kids, they like, so you're, you're writing poetry. And you don't just, when you, when you talk poetry, you don't just say poetry. You got to say it with a little, a little class, right? So you say poetry, Poetry. Anyway, that's what we do with the kids. All right, so law, history, poetry, and then we get to the major prophets. And so the, if you don't know what the major prophets did, the major prophets uh, essentially got up every morning and declared, God's going to wipe us out if we don't listen to them. And they watched the nation of Israel and Judah absolutely fall apart. And so we're going to do tears for the major prophets. So when we say major prophets, and we want to say it in a sad way. We want to say major prophets. You say it with a little vulnerability voice, right? Major prophets, okay? The last, so that uh, that's begins in Isaiah and works all the way down through Daniel, all right, for us. Now, Joel begins what we call the minor prophets, and the minor prophets are called minor not because they were less important, but because they were short. Not the people, but the books, okay? And so literally all 12 of the minor prophets were held on one scroll. They want to waste and like, you know, <laughs> unroll it this far. They put all the books on one scroll together. That's, it makes sense, okay? So they put all the scrolls on one scene. It was called the Book of the Twelve in the Hebrew, okay? So these minor prophets are very important books, even though they're short. And so I ran out of stuff. So we just do 12 because I wanted our kids to remember they were 12. And so you're going to do fives and ones. And for some reason, we started doing it really fast. I don't know why that developed, but we do minor prophets, okay? So we have law, history, poetry... Major prophets, minor prophets, okay? Look at that. We're already learning, and now we'll offer the invitation. <laughs> so these are, but here's what you need to know. Those are not the sections of the, New Test, of the, of the Hebrew Bible, okay? They're, that's what we, t- that's the best way to me um, to think about the Old Testament. It's not something I came up with. I came up with the hand signals, but I didn't come up with the names. Um, that's been long accepted in Christian history, um, but those are not the sections of the Hebrew Bible. There were only three of them, and they were the Torah. Say that, Torah. The Nevi'im. These are Hebrew words, okay? And the Ketuvim. Ketuvim, y'all are favorite. Now, here's the good news. The, the Hebrews were smart. They knew nobody would memorize that, so they shortened it to like an acrostic acronym kind of thing. Um, anybody know what NASA stands for? I know some of you do. But most of us don't. We just know it as NASA, right? And so the Hebrew Bible became known as the Tanakh, the T-A-N-A-K. T-N and K. Torah, Nevaim, and Ketuvim. See how smart they are? Hebrew people are smart, all right? So Torah, Nevaim, and Ketuvim. Torah actually means teaching, but it got translated early on in the Greek as law, and that really stuck, okay? So um, that's Torah. The Nevaim is the word prophets. It literally means prophets, and Ketuvim is the writings. So we have the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, 
all that nerdy stuff over, okay? Nerds, you're welcome. What did Jesus just say? I didn't come to abolish what? The law and the prophets. Now, if you don't understand that those are sections of the Hebrew Bible, you think Jesus is just using general terms. Jesus is being very particular in the terms that he is using. Now, he's not speaking Hebrew. He's speaking Greek here or Aramaic. But he's referencing the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Right uh, throughout, Christ, throughout the early Jewish history, we know this, that when people said the law and the prophets, they were including the writings, which were the, the writings were like uh, the poetry books and history type stuff. And so when Jesus, is, when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, his Jewish authors knew exactly what he was talking about, that he was referencing the Tanakh. He was referencing what they held dear, what they held in high esteem. He's clearly referencing these two sections, but in turn, he's referencing the whole thing. He's saying, I know what it's going to sound like. I'm telling you, in October, we're going we're to go through those. But he says, I know where, like as soon as I start teaching what I'm about to teach you. Jesus is giving a disclaimer here. Before I get there, let me just tell you, I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to do away with the Tanakh. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to Fulfill it. He's saying, I didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't come to take away what, our, what was spoken by God through and to our ancestors. The thing that we've studied for generations, the thing that has given us our worldview, I promise you, followers, I didn't come to abolish it. I actually came to fulfill it. Jesus is saying that he's the embodiment of God's covenant and promises. Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the snake in Genesis 3. He's the son of Abraham who would be a blessing to all nations. He's the true Passover lamb. Though Israel held a tabernacle to experience God's presence on earth, but only certain people were allowed in, Jesus came to earth and was the presence of God, walking and talking. Jesus was Isaiah's Emmanuel. Jesus is the one Moses spoke about that would bring God's law not on tablets of stone from a mountain, but into the hearts of man. He's the red cord of Rahab that saved her. He's the son of David who sits on a forever throne. He's the, Isaiah, the one Isaiah wrote of when he called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's the lowly king riding on a donkey in Zechariah, and he's the messenger of the covenant in Malachi. From beginning to end, from the law, the prophets, and the writings, it's all pointing forward to Jesus. And that's what he came to declare. He's, his, his declaring of the kingdom is that it's all about me. I am the king, the whole thing from beginning to end is about Jesus. And Jesus doesn't wait to the end of his ministry to begin teaching this point. He does so at the very beginning through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, arguably, he usually has these conversations in smaller groups. Because <laughs> he wasn't dumb. <laughs> Jesus knew if he made bold statements like he makes, and there was a large group around, he would quickly be stoned and killed. So Jesus here, again, he's got his disciples gathered together and he's teaching these things. Now, if you want more details on what it looks like for Jesus to be the center of the whole Bible, we did a series a while back called Christ-Centered. Uh, if you're new to our church or just missed those, I would encourage you. That was in uh, 
June and July. You can find those on our podcast or our Facebook page. Um, but I want to show you, not only is Jesus uh, the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible, um, I want to show you what else Jesus says. Because um, Jesus sounds, uh, he, he's beginning to, to kind of push the envelope, but here he really affirms verses 18 and 19 really would hit home with a Jew and make them feel at peace. Okay? This is what he says. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, again, go back to verse 17. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And Jesus is showing the disciples that he believes that the Hebrew Bible is important. For us, the Old Testament is important. Jesus says that the law of God will exist as long as creation does. It should, he, he says two things, right? What does he say? He says it's not going to pass away, and here's two things you should do with it. You should keep it, you should obey the Word of God, and you should teach others to do the same. It should, the Word of God, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible should be taught and obeyed. And at this point, Jesus would be getting amens from the back row of the religious elite. Right? They would be saying, yes. Now, here's a rabbi right here. This guy knows what he's doing. This is good. This is something I can agree with. Um, I've been in churches before. If I just say America, I get applause. You know those kind of churches? I've preached in churches like that before. And if you're ever just kind of quiet, you just say America. And they go, yeah, amen. And they get fired up. That, this was that way for the religious elite. He says the Hebrew Bible is important. And they would have clapped. They would have been really fired up. But then he drops verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, what Jesus is conveying is, is this is the first moment where Jesus has been showing us who, what the kingdom looks like. This is the first moment where he actually declares someone that won't get in. Okay? That's important. This is the first moment where Jesus has showed us who won't get in. And who does he say won't get in? Well, those whose righteousness doesn't exceed the scribes and Pharisees. We know that. Okay? But... He also seems to be saying that the scribes and Pharisees won't be getting in, right? Because <laughs> he says your righteousness has to be greater than theirs, which means their righteousness isn't greater than that. So he's making a bold. He's making a statement here that's going to become a theme in the book of Matthew. Uh, Jesus wearing out these two groups. But point number three is this: that righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees does exist. That's important for us to grasp. So the scribes, just so you know, I know these are terms that we don't necessarily use a lot. Scribes, these were professional students of the law, okay? The scribes were people that were devoted to the practical application of the law in daily life. They would take the laws and they would think through and think through. They would take the Sabbath. They would go, ah, the Lord said to keep the Sabbath holy. And then they would create 15,000 scenarios of what might happen on the Sabbath that would cause you to prevent... uh, would cause you to not keep that law, and then they would back up and create more and more ideas and laws, and it, it creates a lot of anxiety among the people. But they were devoted to the practical application of the law in daily life. The Pharisees, they're like a reformist branch of Judaism. 
Okay? They saw themselves as leading this great reform to keep God's laws more faithfully than the, than the previous generations. Here's what you need to know. They were the pros of the day. They were the professional uh, Bible teachers and Bible learners. These guys are the scholars. And no logical thinker would have thought that you could possibly exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Nobody would have thought that. So when Jesus makes the statement that unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, you won't get in, that would have been very disheartening for a group of people who've seen the scribes and Pharisees. They've seen them walk around with their long robes and their tassels hanging off their robes and keeping so many of the laws that the normal everyday people keep giving into. Jesus begins to help them. He's helping his disciples see that there is a different type of righteousness that I'm speaking about. Right? At this point in Jewish history, all the Jews think what righteousness looks like is perfect sinlessness. That's what they think. You want to be righteous? You live perfect. That's it. Bar none. Why did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden? Because <laughs> they weren't perfect. All right? They got removed from the... Per- so this, this the idea, it's in the Bible. Okay? It's there. But Jesus shows them that they've been thinking wrongly about righteousness. And his followers pick this up, but there's a verse that the Jews needed to be reminded of, and it's Genesis 15, verse 6. I love this verse. I didn't turn there, and it's not in my notes. If you don't know the story of Abraham, uh, Jesus was originally Abram. Um, but God changes his name to Abraham. But uh, in chapter 12, we get introduced to this guy who doesn't seem to even know who God is, but God comes to him and says, I want to do something great through you. I want to give you land. I want to give you a big family. And I want your family to be a special blessing to all the nations. And he says that in chapter 12, and then they live their life. They follow God. And he gets old, and he still doesn't have any kids. And then chapter 15 comes along. And Abram Uh, God comes to him again, and he says, hey, man, it's going to be good. I've got big plans for you. And Abram says, look, dude, I don't even have any kids. I'm going to have to give a slave my inheritance right now. I don't even have any children of my own. And then God declares. He says, look at the sky and count the stars. I'm in verse 5. Look at the sky. Count the stars if you even can. That's how numerous your offspring will be. And verse 6 says this. Abram believed the Lord. And God credited it to him as righteousness. Now notice, this is the first time and one of the only times, if not the only, that Abram is called righteous. And it's not because of his deeds. What's it, what, did it, what was it because of? His faith. What Jesus does through the rest of his ministry and what his followers pick up on and begin to teach to the Jews to try to get them to understand is that God doesn't want your obedience. He wants your heart, right? He doesn't want... the, The scribes and Pharisees, they were doing their best to keep every single part of the law, but what God wanted was their heart. God, they were, they were puppets, they were, they were stick figures who were being perfectly obedient, but what, what God wanted the entire time was their heart. And this is a beautiful picture that gets picked up on, um, again, in, in, in uh, Paul's letters uh, and, and even in some other places. But uh, 
that because of his faith, he was credited righteousness. This is point number four. Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us. If you don't know the word, it's okay. We're going to get there, okay? What Paul picks up on, and I believe Jesus teaches even in his ministry, is just like Abraham believed and had faith in God, and because of that faith, God considered him righteous. Now, if you read the story of Abraham, dude's far from it. He's kind of a dirtbag a couple of times, even to his wife. And he doesn't follow God very closely, and he does even lack faith sometimes. But in this moment, Abraham has faith in the Lord, and God views him as righteous. Now, I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think the whole book of Hebrews is making the argument that nothing has changed. You know how, you, you know how God viewed the Old Testament people as righteous? Not through their deeds. It was through their faith. How does God view us today as righteous? It's through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a, man, I think just a, a great, it's a New Testament version of what just happened in Genesis 5.6. It says, God made the one who did not know sin. Now, who did not know sin? Jesus, okay? We've got to make sure we understand. So God made Jesus to be what for us? Sin. God made Jesus, who didn't know sin, to be sin for us. I don't know why this hit me this week, and if maybe this speaks to some of you. Jesus didn't hold your sin. Your sin wasn't placed on Jesus. Second Peter tells us that it was placed in Jesus. Paul says here, Jesus became your sin. He didn't carry it. He didn't hold it. He became it. What that means is that when God looked at Jesus on the cross, he no longer saw his son. What did he see? Our sin. That's what he saw. Jesus became our sin. So that. Oh, so that. You need to double underline every so that that you run into in Paul's letters. So that, why did God send Jesus to become our sin? So that in him, anytime you see in him, it's, it's, it's union language. Saying in salvation, in Christ, because of your relationship with Christ. So that through salvation, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, not be given the righteousness of God. That is not what that said. What is given can often be taken away. My son has learned that with a Nintendo Switch at the house. I gave it to you, and son, I can take it away. What Paul says here is that through Christ we become the righteousness of God. And just as God looked on Jesus and saw sin... Now when God looks on us, what does he see? Righteousness. The perfect righteousness of Christ. Uh, great theologians have called this the great exchange. Right? Jesus becomes our sin and we become his righteousness. It's this beautiful 
picture of what happens at salvation. We aren't given, uh, we, we don't give Jesus our sin, he became it. And we, don't, we aren't given his righteousness, we become it. When we trusted in Christ, the righteousness of Christ, we became that. And now when, Christ, when God looks down on us, he sees his son. He looked at the cross and saw our sin. Now he looks on us and he sees the son. Today, if you've never trusted in Jesus, this is what you can accept today. This is the truth of the gospel, that there is a great exchange that awaits you. God stands ready to make this exchange in your life for your sin to be acknowledged as dead with Jesus. And we get to accept the, the, the righteousness of God in us. If you've never trusted in Jesus, that's what you can do today. And here's what it takes. There's no good deeds you can do. The righteousness that exceeded the scribes and Pharisees was Jesus' righteousness. And we, we access that in the same way that Abram did, by faith. Today, if you've never trusted in Jesus, that's what you need to do. If you're living your life trying to do right things, if you're trying to do all the good deeds so that hopefully at the end of your life, God will look and say, well done, faithful servant. I promise you, you ain't killing it better than the scribes and Pharisees. They're more righteous than you ever dreamed of. But what you can have is a different type of righteousness that Christ offers through faith. We would love to talk with you about how you can find that faith. What, what Christ is about to do through the rest of Matthew 5 is begin to show us what this looks like. He's begin to show us that everything in the Old Testament is not about what we do with our hands, but it's about what happens in our heart. And that's where we're going next. But for some of you that are Christians, um, you're probably on either you're probably on one side of this. You're probably either uh, you're one of these people who uh, maybe you are struggling with with trusting, um, and you're trying to earn it. You're, you even though you accepted Christ and you he listen. This is what you need to hear. He sees you as righteous. God sees you that way. If you've trusted in Jesus, that's how He sees you. Find rest in that. Yeah, if you sin this week, don't just ignore it and think it's not a big deal. But at the same time, know that there's forgiveness for that. But others of you are maybe on the other side of that. And you need to recognize that your sin, Jesus became that. Like he died with it and for it. And you don't need to have anything to do with it anymore. The sin that you find yourself so easily entangled in has been paid for and done. Stop staying there. Let it go and move on and live in the fullness of faith that God has for us. I want to say a word of prayer. Musicians are going to come on up and we're going to pray. And today we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a little bit. And it'll, it'll, it'll be a little bit different than what you're used to. We'll talk about that here in a second. But we just want to sing at a time of response. Because if you've never trusted in Jesus today... Uh, we would love to share with you about how you can do that, and 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 you can take the Lord. You can you can understand more of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be today by trusting in Jesus. Today, we'll have counselors by the back door, and I'll be down front uh, to receive you to, to answer any questions that you have about faith. We'd also love to talk with you about church membership and baptism and all those things that are so important to what we do here. But I'm going to say a word of prayer, and we're going to sing, and then. Um, 
I'm going to, uh, then we'll move into the Lord's Supper after that. Father, we trust uh, that what you wanted said today has been said. And Father, I pray that you would uh, stir in our hearts and draw us to, uh, to do what you need us to do today. Um, God, to live for you this week. We love you. Bless this time together. In Jesus' name.